My name is Aram. Welcome to God's Fall. God's Fall is a custom Dungeons & Dragons campaign in an original world that is written, played, recorded, and produced in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Steven. I'm playing Torbic Wildtongue, the level 4 Dwarf Paladin. Hi, I'm Doug. I'm playing Doro Knot, the level 4 Halfling Rogue. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm playing Zion Preeton, a level 4 Human Sorcerer. Hi, my name's Kelly, and I play Rena Falaval, a level 4 Wild Elf Ranger. The History of God's Fall, Part 3, The Empire of Kadar. The Empire of Kadar was once five nations of its own, split along racial lines to the north and long-standing family blood feuds to the south. Centuries of internal conflict kept the massive continent fractured into the heart of her vast grain fields or charred to the very bedrock by Sephora. The people who lived in this central valley of rich farmland were obliterated along with their lands, leaving only a few thousand survivors. Less than 500 remained, scraping by a meager existence by collecting salt from the gaping maw of Mordecai. As the god of death fought with Sephor to defend his lovers of Vaughn in the Great God's War, a chasm was torn through the entirety of Kadar, splitting the nation in two. Salt water sloshes over the edges of the canyon at high tide and mixes with thermal vents to form a bubbling alkaline brew. The seawater evaporates constantly, coating the walls and mouth of the chasm in a thick crimson paste that is rich in salt and highly prized throughout the kingdom. Collecting the salt is no easy task. Those working the chasm must wait until winds shift the toxic clouds away before rushing in to break off as many chunks as they can carry. Even with these precautions, most salt collectors bear deep, angry scars and bleached skin, its pigment drained by the toxic clouds. Others have been torn apart, or worse, by aftershocks of powerful wild magic that explode into reality across the broken ridge of the Maw, remnants of the terrifying divine forces unleashed in the God's War. The largest of these communities sits between the Hissing Maw and the Glass Sea, a huge flat that covers a pool of brine in a crusty layer of compacted salt a few meters deep. The Glass Sea is virtually devoid of any wildlife or vegetation, save for a large pale green cactus that grows quickly around the edges of the lakes. The thin, clear water held within the plants is rich with aloe and stained a sickly yellow. When boiled down to a paste, it is used to soothe the sores incurred by the salt harvesters. It is said the glassy was formed when Lataria, the demigoddess child of Ayus, had her own children torn away from her and smashed against the rocks, as was divine law for any creature born of less than half godly blood. 
Her tears are said to have mixed with her milk to form the vastness that is the glass sea, known to locals as Lataria Sorrow. In daylight, the surface of the glass sea acts as a highly reflective mirror that attracted worshippers from many deities who saw the flats as a way for mortals to walk and dance among the very heavens. To this day, makeshift shrines of bleached bone and dried flowers are regularly found by sweeps of the local Kadarian anti-theots who have stood watch over the flats since the Gods' War. The southern lands of Kadar were once known as the Shining Plain, a name still used by many locals to this day. It is a land of horsemen and ranchers who drive vast herds across her rolling hills. The hills are covered in a thick blue-green grass that grows quickly and springs back from even the roughest hoof. The broken shore along her southeastern border is dominated by the Southern Shield, a vast slab of pale gray stone cut in clean, simple lines that rises from the grassland in a huge ramp, leading to the top of her fortress-like castle. Like the capitals of every nation, the Southern Shield sits on the King Sea. Once Kadar was founded, her capital was moved north to the lush islands formed from the Burning Eye, a volcano summoned by Sephor in his battle with Mordecai. After the war, these islands were claimed by General Kadar as public fields to feed his starving people. With them, a fleet of over a hundred ships and a new grain valley formed from the ashes that fell from the Burning Eye, his people were saved. The largest of these islands was named for the new Kadarian royalty and became the home of the Empire's new capital. Antalya is an island covered in lush farmland and orchards which produce some of the finest produce in all of the Five Kingdoms. The great northern melon that grows only here, an ivory orb filled with a tangy, bright yellow pulp and seeds the size of a man's thumb, is one of her most prized. The powdered seeds from the fruit once served as the base for many bubbling cauldrons of magical brew. The palace sits on the northwestern edge of the island, a stately castle of clean lines wrapped within a cocoon of five separate walls, each progressively taller as the land marches upwards to meet the conical towers of the castle within. The western edge of the castle opens into a hedge mage with leafy walls some 15 feet high and 5 feet thick. In the center of this maze is a long, wide pool with a series of lazy, quiet fountains slowly churning the water. A flock of several dozen peacocks strut about this inner garden, warm by the thermal vents and underground springs all year long. Second only in wealth and power to the crown, the city of Demrick controls much of the wheat, barley, sunflower seed, oats, potatoes, and rye produced in the northern farmlands of Kadar. The city sits on the banks of twin freshwater lakes and wide golden fields, her soil enriched by ash from the burning eye. There are many who believe that wealth has made the people of Demrick soft and gluttonous. They pay their fair share in food tariffs, and without their trade hub, much of the staple goods of the empire could not reach her inner continent. 
but they also revel in their status and celebrate each harvest and festival with a grandeur that seems outlandishly garish by comparison to the abstemious anti-theots and those adherent to their values. Kadar's people, cowed and ravaged by the cruel divinity of the gods, turned against their old masters and cursed them even in death. Temples across the continent were torn down or left to rot, while the remaining faithful were, and are, viciously prosecuted. Magic is forbidden and ordered to be turned over to the state, which in turn hands much of it over to the dwarves of Gaul Hadir to be broken down in their massive lava forges. Though they claim to eschew all magic, Kadar takes regular shipments of magical constructs from the dwarves in the form of iron golems. These steel giants are used for two purposes. Thick copper rings are fused to their frames, allowing lines to be attached so they can drag ships into harbor. Others are covered in thick spikes and sent charging into battle, impaling their enemies as they press ever forward, covered in their screaming, flailing bodies. Though immensely important to both the Kadarian military and naval might, the golems are unsettling to a people who were taught to distrust and hate all things magical. In retaliation to their inhuman power, the people of Kadar have sought to make a spectacle out of the Iron Giants through sport. Teams of three specially trained warriors engage with the constructs in an attempt to topple them before the golems run them down. Many believe that these contests also served as thinly-veiled exercises for taking down the God King. It is thought that Kadar could have dozens, even hundreds of these constructs either active or in storage, and larger versions are rumored to exist, though none have ever been seen. Aside from the golems, the majority of magic has been stripped from Kadar's great cities. Priests of their anti-religion regularly patrol the far corners of the continent, rooting out any and all magic with blackened ironwood staves that clutch fist-sized seeker stones. For those found hoarding magic, the punishment is always the same. Death by public execution. This sentence is absolute as beggars and noblemen alike have suffered the fate. The order of the Seekers believe that man is superior to all others. After all, it was man that survived the apocalypse that killed all the gods. In this belief, they encourage a disciplined life of rigorous physical and mental training. Intellect is equal with brawn in their society, and a prince only worth as much as the finest farmer. Your value came from what you can produce for the good of the country. Kadarians are expected to put their nation first and themselves, and even their families, second. Further north, this belief in human supremacy is matched by the disdain the dwarves of Gaul Hadir have for any outside their bloodline, even that of other dwarves. 
The Kadarians are no fools. They know how valuable the golems and anti-magic bane swords that emerge from the dwarven lava forges are, but they also know a day will come when they will have to burn them out of those mountains and purify all of Kadar once and for all. The dwarves of Galhadir are a stoic reclusive lot, led by six ancient houses that existed long before the empires of man. For the past 300 years, the mountaintop citadel has been ruled by House Stoneburner and led by the brilliant geomancer Thoric. King Stoneburner is obsessed with acquiring as much old magical material as possible to break down into their raw elements in the heart of Galhadir's great lava forges. Though these forges were ordered dormant as part of a treaty hammered out after the last war, King Stoneburner ordered the magical seals to the lava tubes reopened half a decade ago. They have flowed ever since, filling the night sky of northern Kandar with a red bloom that rolls across the horizon in waves of glowing fire. Thirteen Republics of Wessel. The continent of Wessel is a rich cornucopia that stretches across all the lands of the north. To the south, thick old forests choked with underbrush spread across the land before the leafy canopy gives way to the oppressive humid rot of a vast boiling swamp known as the southern wetlands. A network of vents pump primordial gases into the soaked marsh, killing nearly all life within as the heated water belches plumes of acidic gas. What trees remain have tendrils of bleached roots that snake along the surface for hundreds of feet in all directions, erupting from the leafless mass of a mottled gray trunk. The settled lands of the north make up the bulk of Wessel's humanoid population, save for the tribes of orcs to the far south each sharing equal representation on the Council of Thirteen. Ankara. Ankara is a wide quarter circle of windswept plains met on her eastern edge by a series of low rolling hills. These gently sloping mounds are covered in heavy blankets of coarse yellow grasses that support several species of herding animals. The lands around the capital of Saran are well known for both their superior horses and the masterful riders who tame them. The north of Ankara is dominated by 15-foot-tall boars called Granta, who are feared as much for their raw physical might as their cleverness. Standing as tall as an elephant, Grantas gather in close-knit families that actively protect one another and share in the responsibility of raising their young. Slavery is illegal in Ankara, which was formed from a slave rebellion after the most recent invasion from Kadar. It is the only republic to offer sanctuary to escaped slaves, though they will extradite any who commit crimes beyond those necessary to free themselves from captivity, a loophole that is frequently exploited. Varna.
sharing a southern border with Ankara, Varna also shares their grantas, as the lumbering boars migrate across their lands to drink at a long, deep freshwater scar known as Loch Van. Many speak of a beast that lives within this frigid darkness, though only a handful claim to have seen its gargantuan hunched form slip beneath the murky waters. The wide hills are choked with thick, waxy leaves that fan out from a blood-red center to a deep purple with a strip of ivory along the edge. The plants are as tough as burlap and extrude a vicious sap if cut or burned. Passing through them reduces speed to one-quarter movement, and passage with horses or wagons is impossible. Further east lie the even more impassable Indigo Hills jungle, a rainforest dominated by three trees, the Black Alder, which mainly live at the forest edges, in swamps and along riverside corridors, huge swatches of ivory beaches, tall slender trees with white bark that flakes off in rolls to reveal a deep navy, and equally largest groves of Sturgis nests, also known as sweet chestnuts. These trees get their name from the nest-like fibers that surround clusters of blood-red nuts that resemble the roost of a sturge. The blood-sucking creatures live in abundance in these woods and use the trees as natural camouflage to hatch their young. At her far southern border, the indigo hills rise out of the vegetation to form a series of towering stone pillars, the largest stretching 2,000 feet into the sky. This monolith is known to locals as Bayazid Kulisi, or the Fire Tower, and is what remains of the core of an ancient volcano. Deep underground chambers once filled with molten rock have long gone cold and brittle, their walls invaded as subterranean lakes broke into the surface in tremendous gouts of water that formed the mouths of two mighty rivers, the Asi to the east and the Asta to the west. The warm wetlands of Schumann are home to a series of fruit-bearing forests that cover the Republic and are known collectively as the South Wind Orchards. Plums and dates dominate the north while peaches, pomegranates, and sweet cherries form thick canopies in the south and east. Loquats grow wild across Schumann, attracting granta herds in the early winter who travel south just as the clusters of pear-shaped two-inch-long fruits are in full bloom. The fruits are yellow to orange, depending on how mature the plant, and when ripened, deepen to a waxy crimson. The succulent, tangy flesh is white, yellow, or orange, again, depending on the age of the plant, and acidic to very sweet. The capital of Baguna is an active shipping port, as seasonal torrential rains make transporting wagons burdened with heavy loads of fruit nearly impossible. Vratza. Nearly half of the landlocked Republic of Vratza is comprised of the Tuzla wetlands, a humid marsh dominated by thick clumps of mangrove trees. The capital gale strides the mighty Astra, the towers of her cathedrals carved from the sheer bedrock that split the river in two. The people of Vratza have long been worshippers of Mivia, a belief held most strongly by the rural people of the south who live along the edges of her lakes and rivers. In late Safan, those who remain faithful journey deep into the heart of the Tuzla wetlands in search of a type of mango tree named for the goddess herself. 
These Mivia mangroves grow smaller than the rest with pale lime green seed clusters that form deep within its tangled mass of roots. The seed pods remain submerged for all but two weeks of their production. When the water levels lower, their waxy waterproof shell dries out and falls away, revealing a downy yellow fluff that covers the ivory fruit, used both for its medicinal and intense psychoactive properties. Those that consume the seeds are said to be able to see snippets of both past and future from within dreams that merge with their waking conscious. Continued use of the seeds is said to lead to blindness and madness. The grand city that houses the capital of Wessel, as well as her council of thirteen, sits in the north of this lush grassland that bends east to gently cup the King Sea with long beaches of shimmering white sand known as the Moon Coast. Rolling gently before the golden capital is the Sun Sea Bay, a tranquil inlet of clear water protected on both sides by rocky inlets that curve to narrow at its entrance to the King Sea. A pair of watchtowers carved from crystalline amber are lit at all times by huge braziers, creating an illusion that they are twin columns of orange flame. This gave the towers their name as the Pillars of Sephor, while also providing ships sailing at night a pair of radiant beacons by which to safely navigate the waters surrounding Tidewatch. While not as rich as the lands of the gods' field to the south, Pigs, oxen, and sheep grow fat from her endless grassy hills and rich schools of fish pool just off her shores. Rivers tumble out of the indigo hills and spill across her thick forest to gather in a narrow, warm lake that runs clear all the way to the bottom. Algae from the many fallen logs that crisscross the turquoise lake bed and travertine that seeps into the water from hot springs mixed to form a rainbow sheen that ripples across the surface in waves that mimic the lights over the skies to the cold north. The lake swells in the wet season and cascades over its steep eastern bank to form miles of powerful falls, some hundreds of feet high, which tumble down lush spillways and form dozens of smaller crystal clear pools. A series of these pools can form into chains before joining a churning river that crosses the border into Vratza, eventually emptying into the Tuzla wetlands. The highest and most powerful of these cascading waterways is named after the goddess of time. The water that thunders over her soaring edge conceals a shrine to Mivia that can only be accessed if the pounding falls are somehow held back. Twin bayside cities of Kessel and Koru were rich fishing towns that quickly grew into thriving metropoles. They are in constant rivalry with one another, most of which is in the form of open, healthy competitiveness, but other feuds are solved by less noble means. Both cities are rife with slavers, the trade being legal in seven of the thirteen republics, and out of those that prohibit it, only Ankara provides a safe haven for escaped slaves, though the trade is more openly practiced in Koru. Captured orcs and nationless humans are shipped from the free lands of the south to work the plantations of the north. Kundasa One of the largest and richest of the Thirteen Republics, Kundasa claims much of the fertile lands of the Godsfield Valley, cradling the western calm at her southern border and Tuzla wetlands to the north. Gold Hill sits in the heart of the Republic, 
Nestled at the feet of the Cottonmouth Lake, a winding body of fresh water spawning several rivers that nourish the farmlands of Wessel. It is a sprawling metropolis that serves as the capital of Kandasa, as well as a major trade hub for most of the inner continent. Slavery is openly practiced in the Republic and used as a primary form of punishment for dozens of offenses. Kandasa is ruled by the same family that gave her the namesake after purchasing the land nearly 400 years ago, buying their way into a throne they could not otherwise acquire. Most of the land is covered in great fields of grain, corn, wheat, and soybeans, staples of the Wesselian diet as well as major export grains across the Five Kingdoms. Cotton, milkweed, and a variety of herbs and grasses that have medicinal or hallucinogenic properties, and frequently both, can be found far to the west. Haskovo. Across the mighty Saqqara River from Kadassa lie Haskovo, the richest of all the 13 republics. Her soil is enriched by minerals that flow from underground springs around the northern foothold of the Ligon Mountains, known to the humans as Mount of the Forest. Rice grown in mineral-rich paddy fields here is particularly flavorful and desired all over the Five Kingdoms. Aside from rice, Haskovo yields mostly wheat and soybeans, with mandarin, sugarcane, and a variety of seeds, sesame, sunflower, and rapeseed being the most popular, spread across the north. The city of Hogsfeet is the core of livestock trade for much of Wessel, and the host of an annual celebration to the demigoddess Grunta, Lady of All Swine. The week-long festival concludes with High Harvest, a day celebrated across all the kingdoms as the height of summer plenty, a time for revelry and gluttony. Long. The Republic of Lom juts out sharply from Wessel, splitting the tranquil bay from the King Sea. Her ivory cliffs mark the nearest shore to the Kingdom of Brennus, and on a clear day the imposing sandstone walls of the Bracken Hill Citadel are clearly visible across the 22-mile-wide channel. The small republic is dominated by two key features. The Goldwood, a rich forest abundant with citrus fruits that encompass much of the north, and the Grain Vault. Constructed soon after the Gods' War, the vault is connected to the winding Vedi River through a system of wide locks, allowing grain barges to safely bypass a dangerous rapid and gain quicker access to the King Sea. Rosgrad. The largest of the 13 republics, Rosgrad commands a wide expanse from the southern shores of the western calm through the mistwoods and the southern wetlands right up to the footholds of the freelands of the south. The western edge of Rosgrad rises to form a long wall of high cliffs that face the jagged spires of Blackfang Bay, a known haven for pirates and smugglers. Thornhill Tower stands on the highest point and serves as an early warning system from raiders seeking to pillage her towns and villages along the eastern shore. Aside from these smaller communities, the only major city in Lom is Quito, a fishing mecca and final port of call along the western calm. Quito is a wild city, populated with all measure of races and creatures, and restrained by few laws. Veldaram
Nearly 300 centuries ago, the steady order of Gaul Hadir was thrown into chaos when Clan Stoneburner, of which not a single dwarf had been seen in nearly 300 years, returned to re-establish their birthright among the great northern houses. Wielding strange magics and advanced technologies, the dwarves of Clan Stoneburner easily ousted the Knights of Kalamor, the ruling house of Gaul Hadir for the past millennia exiling them both from the mountain and from the continent that would one day be known as Kadar. The knights wandered for years before they arrived at Ligun, a steep, forking mountain range covered nearly to the peaks in trees and underbrush. They set to climbing her and discovered a powerful subterranean river that burst from the northern face and tumbled into the eastern calm. It was here they built a new city and named her for their order. Though they fought fiercely against the Kadar invaders centuries later, they were once again beaten into submission by the magics and advanced technology of their northern brothers. As per Kadarian custom, those that survived were sold off as slaves, the halls of Kalamor were stripped bare of their treasures, and the city was cast stone by stone to the deep pool of water beneath the cascading falls. When the war was over, many of the freed knights returned to Ligun to rebuild their city, an effort that continues to this day. Kubrat. The small Republic of Kubrat lay pressed between the eastern calm and the Ligon Mountains. The capital city Jaffra rests on the shores of a quiet inlet and serves mainly as a convenient port of trade for the dwarves rebuilding Kalamor. Silistra. The Republic of Silistra also juts out far into the tranquil bay, the gleaming emerald tower of Phalite standing boldly at the water's edge. Phalite sits at the mouth of the eastern calm, a shallow bay of warm, rich water that provides the towns and cities that ring its beaches and cliffs a bounty of sea life to exploit. In early Safan, the whipweed that chokes the waters around Phalite all produce their seeds in a single, mesmerizing, week-long event. Millions and millions of tiny glowing seeds rise to the surface of the water and crack open, revealing a dozen feathery stems that are picked up by the wind and carried along the water's surface, each glowing in turn. The seeds attract birds, bats, fish, and other creatures that eat the seeds and spread them across the south. Lovek. The sprawling Republic of Lovek is largely a country in name only. Much of her lands are uninhabitable. 
The gloom, a dangerous and impassable forest, the southern wetlands infested with giant crocodiles and trolls, and the ruins and land around Lake Fogmire are cursed for all time. Those who enter the silvery fog that permanently obfuscates her shore immediately and irrevocably lose all memories, guaranteeing that none ever learn anything about what lay within. Only the capital Zadar could be called a true city, and even then only boasts 10,000 full-time inhabitants. Many more thousands of drifters, seasonal workers, and other migrants pass through the area throughout the year, swelling the temporary population by half during peak seasons. Roughly 90% of the Zadarian floodplains are submerged during the rainy season, nurturing an astonishingly biologically diverse collection of aquatic plants and supporting a dense array of animal species. It is a huge, gently sloping basin that receives runoff from the Ligon Mountains and slowly releases the water through the Narva River and into the Tranquil Pass. During this season of flooding, miles and miles of red cargo rice are planted in the natural paddy farms that form in the flooded valley, with the help of many temporary workers. The conditions are harsh, and even the smallest infraction can result in a punishment of being enslaved and sold up north. But for many, it is the only way to gather enough food to survive the winter. The Freelands of the South A 50-mile-wide band of blasted rock and scorching sand separates the edge of Lovick from the towering onyx walls of the coal spine the space in between as known as the Freelands of the South. Two tribes of orcs rule most of the desert, with the bloodthirsty raiders of Clan Deathhammer controlling the west and the relatively peaceful Clan Flatrock dominating the east. Small communities of outcasts also find home among the rocks and hills, while strange elves with alabaster skin and pale yellow eyes are said to inhabit the jungles of the east. Two massive rivers are the major source of fresh water in these lands, one draining from the overflow of Lake Fogmire, while the other forms from melting snow and captured rain flowing from the slopes of Ligun. The former plunges deep within the heart of the coal spine, winding through a narrow crevasse for hundreds of miles before opening to reveal a land forgotten by time. Cut off from the rest of the world and kept oppressively humid by natural springs and thermal heat, this pocket inside the titanic coal spring is home to thousands of species long thought extinct to the rest of the world. It is also home to the Giudari. Standing on average over eight feet tall with thick fur-covered bodies that frequently weigh up to 400 pounds, the Giudari are a product of divine tinkering, an evolutionary what-if of what humanity might have become. The speed of the Giudari belies their hulking girth. Though made humanoid through powerful magic, they have lost little of their primate agility. Added to this is their astonishing fortitude. Giudari scouts will frequently drop 30 feet from the tree line to surprise their prey, and can leap from branch to branch with ease. Once they broke free of their creators, the Giudari were chased and persecuted across Wessel. The humans hounded them through the gloom and into the southern wetlands, only to have trolls take up the assault. 
Once in the Sand Hills, the orcs of Clan Deathhammer savaged their numbers nearly to extinction. It was then that Ova took pity on the Giudari, leading them to their tropical sanctuary hidden deep within the heart of the coal spine. Ova sent spirit animals to guide the Giudari in a path of harmony with their new paradise, and they have fiercely guarded it against trespassers ever since. Thank you for joining us for our third history episode of God's Fall. We are currently very busy working on the two-hour mid-season finale and also on the world book. For those of you who haven't heard, we've gotten the green light from Dungeons & Dragons to go ahead with the God's Fall world book, and we will be launching the Kickstarter any day now. For more information, as well as daily, if not hourly, updates for our Kickstarter world book, follow us on Twitter at godsfall.com. And if you have any questions about the podcast or the world book, email them to me at godsfalldc at gmail.com. We're looking to produce our first mailbag episode of season two, so any questions you guys have for the last 10 episodes or just in general for the entire show of God's Fall, send them our way. If you want to be incredibly awesome, record an audio question and send that our way. We'll be sure to edit it into the podcast. So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting God's Fall, and we will see you next time for episode 38, The Top of the World.